We'll take with me your copy of God's Word and open up to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark will be in chapter 12 again today. Let me just mention two people here at the head of the the sermon. First, Jason Reed prayed for us this morning, and I'm grateful for his leadership already as our new executive pastor. He's been helping shepherd the staff and climb into the church's books and uh, help get to work managing the operation of the church. And uh, I, I knew it before he came and have grown to appreciate his love for the church and even, even our church, even as we're a new church to him. So give thanks to God in your prayers for Jason and for Deb and for their families. They continue to settle into town and to this church family. I think they're about seven weeks in. Second name I want to mention to you is Brad Baum. Brad Baum is a pastor at Emmanuel Bible Church in Malden. Emmanuel Bible Church is a church planted out of heritage here about 15 years ago. And Brad has been faithfully picking up the Bible every week and preaching there. And the gospel is strong and that church is healthy. Brad will be preaching for us here next week. I will be preaching there next week. So you get a break from me and they'll get a break from him. We do this about once a year. And the occasion for that pulpit swap, as we call it, is what's happening here on site at Heritage over this coming week. Over this coming week, we'll have about 50 or so area teachers and preachers, many of them lead pastors on site for a preaching workshop with an organization called the Charles Simeon Trust, which helps churches like ours host workshops, almost like spring training weeks for Bible handlers. Most of us who do this full-time do it alone in our churches. We have other preachers and teachers around us, but this is a chance to get a bunch of these men in the room together, and it's hugely encouraging. I've been strengthened by these before, and I'm excited that our church can do that for teachers and preachers in the region. So be in prayer for that, the preaching workshop this coming week here on site, and look forward to hearing the word from Brad Baum next week. Well, there are a number of tensions in the Bible and any doctrine that we, we encounter in Scripture. We can think of the tension in the doctrine of God. Uh, God is both great and transcendent, and He's infinite and invisible, as we've said, but He's near to us and He knows us, and we can pray to Him and be heard. Uh, the doctrine of Christ, He was fully man, He was fully God. The doctrine of salvation, we come to God in faith and we repent and believe and that's a real command and that's real faith that we offer to God. And yet we know that, that God elects from before the foundation of the world. He draws us to himself. And none of these things are easy to connect, but we, we trust them by faith. And frankly, with any doctrine we bump up against in the Bible, we find these kinds of tensions. I think it's a kind of a proof that the book is really what it is. It's really God's word. It, it's a little, little mind-blowing at times, most of the time. Even in sanctification, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but God works in us to complete what he began. Well, even in our relationship with human government, um, we submit and we respect and we seek to live a peaceful and quiet lives. We certainly pray. And yet even in Jesus's words, when he said, give to Caesar what Caesar, that legitimized human government as a good thing and from God, he says, give to God what's God's which is to say that God is over all and Caesar is his and your whole life is his. And so our obedience and submission to government is shaped by our obedience and submission to God in the first place. Well, this morning, last week, excuse me, we focused on give to Caesar what Caesar's to ask ourselves, well, who is Caesar and who are the governing authorities and what do we owe them? What are the things we owe them and how should we go about that? Now, this week, we're going to train our attention on God and the things that we, we owe God. And we can say if last week's sermon had a, had a highlight on the theme of submission, then this week's highlight would be on the theme of, of resistance. And this won't be um, a cookbook for what to do in exactly every situation, a little recipe for you anywhere you might go and, and any challenge you might face. But I hope that this word this morning provides a framework for us for talking and thinking and praying about how to relate with governing authorities when things aren't going as we might pray they would. So we'll, we'll do this by reflecting not only on the passage we've spent a few weeks in already, but by ruminating on a few passages within reach 
Jesus has been teaching about himself and there are multiple encounters he's, he's had. And as I've rummaged around here, just in chapter 12 and 13, I found plenty for us to reflect on as we try to illuminate what it means to give to God what is God's. So let's begin by reading together. We'll be in chapter 12 to begin, verses 13 through 17. And then I'll give us some other verses just within a page or two that we will read together. Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you don't care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's skip down a few paragraphs to verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now, chapter 13, verse one. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John were, and Andrew were, asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I'm he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, this is God's word for us this morning. Well, we might say that straightforward obedience to Jesus is subtle resistance to governing authorities when they seek to take his place. Straightforward obedience to Jesus is subtle resistance to governing authorities when they seek to take his place. Christians are not interested in picking fights Sometimes we may have, even in America, born in revolution and structured so that uh, the population would be energetically engaged in self-governance. We engage in self-governance. We engage ideas and we weigh better and worse options uh, across a whole spectrum of things we might vote on. And, And sometimes those right energies and right passions can can become fused with religious passion and become confusing and even misleading and sometimes problematic. 
Sometimes we can, in our energy to engage in the political process, which again is right and appropriate, find ourselves as Christians just liking to pick fights constantly uh, at difference and setting ourselves in opposition to the world around us. And that is just simply not the church's posture or the Christian's posture, even if we have a true word to say, and even if we are hated in this age for the things that we believe. No, we're not here to pick fights, but Christ does call us time and again to pick sides. And we can't not pick sides. And picking sides, siding with God over the God of this age is going to put us at odds with the winds of the age. When we think about resistance in relationship to the state, an image, it may not do everything it needs to do, but an image may be that of a house in the face of strong winds. I don't know. Did we have something like three tornadoes in the space of a month a year ago? I've repressed the memory, but our whole family was shoved into this small, small closet under our stairs, and we all got in there, all seven of us, and we came out alive, and the house was not tore apart. But I will tell you, I took the trampoline apart because I thought that maybe those winds, based on what was coming through, would send that trampoline into into the house or into the neighbor's yard. I need to buy some anchors for the trampoline still. We'll get around to that before the next tornado, hopefully. But wind sure can do a job. And a house that is constructed right for the type of weather environment in which it is built will withstand wind. It will resist wind just by standing there and doing what it was built to do. It won't bend. It won't, it won't break. It will resist. And when the, the winds pick up and we find ourselves with a finger in our chest and a fight being picked with us and the fight has come To us, we feel the winds of resistance and we ourselves resist those winds. I think that's a a helpful image to hold us up uh, in the face of some of what may be coming and as we think about this idea about the church and the Christian's resistance. Well, there may be difficult times coming depending on our job and depending on our station in life, but let's pray for God's word to sustain us and strengthen us as we go about it. Well, three questions I want to shape our time this morning. We're really preaching, reflecting on that line, give to God the things that are God's. And there's a little bit of a danger in spending too much time on any line. You might've come up with some pretty crazy stuff just in the morning reading your Bible if you spin around on one verse too long, and then later you find out you were totally wrong. Uh, We aren't really meant to spend weeks and weeks on single lines, but some lines are potent enough. They are timely enough that they're worth reflecting on to get just right. And here's three questions I would like us to answer this morning about that simple phrase of Jesus's. Who is God? For to give to God what's his, who is he? That would be important. What are the things that we owe him? What are the things that we owe him? And how ought we to render to God these things? And then I'll have some including reflections on on resistance. And again, the the plan for this morning isn't to get into all the minutiae, but to offer a kind of a way of thinking and a framework to help shape our conversations. And you think preachers and pastors aren't involved in the, the car you buy, the job you get, or or exactly how you go about parenting. And we actually don't mean to be in the middle of everything like that. But everything God's word says does come to bear on all of life for us. And so this sermon will be like that. It may leave you hanging in some places or I wanna know what to do. I, I think in this topic, maybe it's parenting, this topic, and there's a few others where I consistently hear, I want you to tell me exactly what to do. We're not playing Moses. It's one of the things we say around here. Moses gave very detailed instructions for what to wear and how to move and where to go and these kinds of things. And we get frameworks and principles and simple commands like love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And we seek together to apply those things. You can always knock on our door for counsel, of course. I'm just trying to manage expectations on this sermon. Let's get into that first question. Who is God? Who is God? Well, we should want to know that. And as it is, a knowledge of who God is is basic to our ability to obey God 
when it's going to cost us something. And obeying God may have cost you something in this life. And, and if and where it has, I guarantee you, I'd love to hear the story, it's not because you were just really good at habitual raw obedience. No, when your heart treasures something, it's hard to obey a raw command and give it up. But when you know a greater treasure, when God is for you a greater treasure, when God is bigger to you than anything that you lose for him, then you can obey him at all cost. And job number one for us, for you and for our church in any season and for the church in any age is to have a vision of God. And you know the most important thing you can get out of any Lord's Day for any very specific situation you find yourself in in a given week that the sermon might not touch in its specifics at all, the most important thing you can walk out of the room with is a vision of God in all of his glory. And I trust that a vision of God in all of his, his saving and sovereign glory will go a long way to helping you obey when it's hard. Now, our God is a great God and he is a gracious God. And when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, the most important commandment of all, that sure is a good question, isn't it? We're down here in verse 28 and 29 now. Look at his answer. He was happy to answer that question. He's happy to boil it all down. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. It's interesting that before he told them what to do, because they asked the greatest commandment, what's the most important thing to do? Before he told them the most important thing to do, which might not have been what they were thinking, he told them who God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. That's who God is. He is the only God. He is the self-sufficient God who needs nothing for his existence. He doesn't need to eat food or drink water or get some sleep or get some get a nap in the middle of the afternoon. He doesn't slumber or sleep. A rock is a great image for him. His steadfast love is everlasting and his justice is like the mountains. You listen to the way God is described in the Bible and it's just not like us at all. He is self-sufficient. He is the only creator, the only sovereign over time and over space. There isn't a moment of time and there isn't an atom of space in the universe over which God is not God. He's not exploring anything or figuring anything out. He is the God of all power. He is the God of all wisdom. And he is the God of all authority. Everything flows from him and comes from him and accounts to him. He is the judge of the living and the dead. This little line right here, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is familiar to his hearers. It would be called the Shema. This comes from several passages in Deuteronomy and Numbers, passages that, of Scripture that uh, Israelite parents were to teach to their children, to put on their doorposts, to say to one another, where they were called to obey God and to love God with their whole hearts, and where they were reminded of who God is in the first place. The Lord our God is one, and he's the God who redeems us, who delivered us out of Egypt. They were reminded in what they had memorized and rehearsed to one another of who God is as the only God, the one true and living God, and what God had done for them in redeeming them from Egyptian slavery. And that was the basis for anything they would do for God. The Lord our God is one. And that is true for citizens of any nation. And that is true for Caesars who rule over any nation. Give to God what is God's. In the first place, that means acknowledging God as the one true and living God. Our God is one. He is also, the Lord is our God. He's our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God. The Lord is one. He's our God. He's our personal God. 
He is the God who hears the cry of his people. He isn't just sovereign creator, but he is a listener and a hearer and a responder to the cries of his people when Israel was in trouble and cried out from her destitution and poverty. The Lord heard the cry of the people and he spoke to Moses through a bush, lit a bush on fire and got Moses' attention. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. And God had a word for Moses. He had a word for his people. He's the God who hears his people. He's the God who speaks to his people. He's the God who covenants with his people, who gives himself in relationship personally to his people. You remember in our series through Genesis a year and a half ago that when God made a covenant with Abraham, then he had Abraham go to sleep and he had cut pieces of animals and then God in a a flaming fire pot made his way back and forth through the pieces. And his purpose in doing so was in other words to say, if I fail to keep my promises to you, you can cut me in half like you've cut in half these animals. God didn't have to do that. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. But our God is not just God. We can say he is our God who hears and speaks and gives himself to us and then tenderly and graciously and mercifully leads his people in and through everything they find themselves in. He is a good shepherd and he leads us to still waters. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and his staff, they comfort us. There isn't any place that God doesn't go with us and where he doesn't remain our good and gracious shepherd. And he's the God who keeps all of his promises. And we sing those promises every Sunday and we need them. So that's who God is in a nutshell. If you could put that in a nutshell, he is one and he is our God. Well, what are the things that we owe to God? What are the things that are ours that are actually his? What are the things that we have that we are to give to him? When Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's, what are those things that are God's? If you own some properties in town or have a rental house, the house is yours. Those storefronts are yours. And the tenants owe you the things that are yours, which is some money. And you get to decide what that is. If you're a teacher in the local school, uh, the local school, the state owes you some money for your work. And they probably owe you some more money than they've agreed to pay you. And we all understand and we're grateful for you. Anyone who has any job is owed pay. Workers are worth their wages. You're owed something. Well, what is the creator of everything owed? Is there anything that's not his? Is there anything we can say now, this will be mine and then, and then that's yours? Is there anything that God says, okay, now you can have that and then I'll have this, okay? Or maybe you can have that and I'll have that. I'm God and I've decided. It's, it's not even a question. Everything's God's. Now that doesn't mean you don't own your house in a way that your neighbor doesn't own your house. There's a such thing as possessions and property in the world that God made. But when we're speaking about the big picture here, nothing's yours. Your breath isn't, your life isn't, the next minute, it's not yours. It's not mine. It's God's. We owe all to God. What are the things that we owe God? You know, that's the best question to ask. That's the best question to ask when things are going really well. And when the governing authorities are using their sword, their coercive force to punish evil, real evils. And when they're using that sword and their place to praise what is good and praise those who are good, when they're promoting hard and honest work and the place of fathers and mothers in the home and the dignity of, of marriage. And when they're punishing evil, like violence in the streets or violence at the Capitol, when they're using their sword to defend innocent life, 
That is their delegated authority before God for which every governing authority will account to God. This question, what are the things that are God's is a great question to ask when everything's going well. It's a great question to ask at all times. It's also the best question we can ask when things are not going so well. And I just need to say that there are a lot of things that haven't been going well or haven't gone well in our own nation's history, and we can be thankful for ideas and ideals embedded in our own founding documents that are way better than the people who put them there, even though they had better intentions even at times than than what was going on around them. No, we have some beautiful founding documents, probably the best that humans have come up with, relying on true things found in nature and in In Scripture, we can thank God for that. True things that were the seed of the abolition of slavery and the eradication of other kinds of evils, we can always appeal to Scripture, the conscience, to nature, and even a constitution if we've got one that's better than what we see around us and hold the state to it. And and we've done that at different times as Americans, and that's, that's a good thing, and it's right for Christians to be involved in that. But the state gets things wrong. And as the state has gotten things wrong in other parts of the world and in our own nation, tragically, the state continues to, in different ways and in different areas, get things wrong. There is the expected, uh, just to tick off a few things here, Equality Act that you may be familiar with, and it has made its rounds in a few different occasions, and it appears that it will be back, the first order of business first hundred days of the new presidency, and it is not a good thing, and it is something that the Lord will judge those who are for it for. It threatens to coerce men and women to confess things and do things and get on board with a new, refined, um, progressive sexual orthodoxy. Christians are okay with being out of the cultural mainstream, we always have been, but it's not right for the state to make as a matter of orthodoxy its Christian sexual ethic. And Christians do face the real possibility in their lives and vocations as doctors, as educators, as counselors, and in other places the real possibility that they will need to give up those jobs or not steer themselves or their children into those jobs into the future. And that's a shame. There are Christian institutions that may no longer, if this is enacted uh, according to the purpose of and desire of the far left, uh, be able to exist at all. Some institutions that will rely on government grants for their work and whose whose. Uh, economic structure and how the business goes about and the institution works are now dependent upon that will be gone. I think, and this is just my sensibilities and I'm not a prophet and everyone will have their own sense of where things are at at a given moment or going, is that we do have a lot of trouble coming for us. And I think that we're rightly justified in suspecting that just by reading the kinds of passages that we've read, read this morning. There is a kind of a closing of the mind around us to legitimate, even obvious debates about things like what is a man and what is a woman and who can go in what bathroom, what a mom is and what a dad is and what marriage is. Lots to reflect on there and I would put you to researching the Equality Act and the Do Not Harm Act. Uh, Here in our United States, we've had uh, religious freedom, and the history on that is that conscience is a precious thing and a basic thing that, that the state should recognize and honor and leave space for because you can't have a citizenry and a populace that is just doing what the laws allow or not doing what the laws don't allow. You need a people sensitized to their consciences and inclined to obey their consciences. And as it is, there are certain things that we should not be coerced to think or to do. And we've lived in a place where that has been beautifully respected. In 1993, there was the Religious Freedom of Restoration Act, and you may be familiar with that. 
unanimously passed in the House, and I think it was like, I forget the numbers, 93 to 3 or 97 to 3 in the Senate. In other words, big, big cultural and national cohesion around this commitment. And it meant to clarify religious freedom in the United States and suggested that if the state is going to infringe upon conscience or religious liberty, and that they would need to meet two criteria. One, they would need to demonstrate a, a compelling government interest and they would need to come up with a plan in order to meet that government interest with the least restrictive means on religious liberty or the conscience. And it's been a great law, and it clarifies what is appropriate for the state entirely. I just offer that to you if you're unfamiliar with it. I'm not a constitutional law guy, but those are the kinds of things that are good to know that you live inside. This is where we live right now. But the Do Not Harm Act would seek to reinterpret that, trump that, and make something like the Equality Act uh, not submitted to those kinds of laws. In other words, the kinds of protections that you and I have had to go about our business as Christians, believing what we do and living as we do and working as we do and building businesses and institutions as we do, is being transformed, could be transformed. And you should know about that. This question, what are the things that are God's, is an important question to ask when things are going well and when things are not going well, so that we need to know where our lines are and what we need to say and what we need to think and how we, how we ought to live. And Mark 12:30 here is a great anchor verse as we think about this. What things are God's? Well, let's put it in a sentence. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Friends, your whole life is God's. And God is one and he is our God. And it's no problem for us to give our whole lives to God. All of life is his. This verse here with strength and mind and heart and soul, some might want to cut that up into parts, like the soul is this and the mind is this and the strength is this. There's no need to do that. That's just simply a way of saying everything is his. We'll throw four things down that come to mind. Everything is his. Your thoughts, your affections, your life, your time, your money, your strength, your breath, all of it's his. But let's reflect on that command in two parts together. Friends, we owe God our whole inner lives. We owe him our whole inner lives. So think about this. You owe God your thoughts that you think. You owe him the beliefs that you confess, the things that you believe about him, about the world, about human nature, about men and women, about marriage, about name it. You owe God your thoughts, that those thoughts would be true thoughts, that they would think his thoughts after him, that they would be biblical thoughts and beliefs arising from and leading to greater inner affections for God. You know, it's interesting been reading a little bit about the history of religious liberty and conscience and trying to figure out where this vocabulary came from. And it goes back even as far as the second century as Christians reflected on what they owe God in the context of a world where the state wanted them to say things and think things and to do things. And it's interesting that Rome, Rome didn't very well care what Christians thought. They just wanted them to get in line, burn the incense to emperor, and confessed Caesar is Lord and didn't quite understand why this was such a big deal to Christians. Just sign, man. Just sign it. Just sign it. And Christians couldn't do it. They got eaten by lions for not doing it. Kids watched their parents. Parents watched their kids die because they wouldn't just sign here. And you'd think that you could have rationalized it so easily. They don't care. It's a technicality. They wouldn't do it. Caesar was not Lord. Jesus was Lord. That's a bold claim. And they'll give to Caesar what's Caesar's by all means. That's even an act of worship. But they will give to God what is God's. They won't burn incense to the emperor. 
And if they're in a, a trade guild, trade guilds, depending on what your line of work was, for entry may have had requirements like allegiance to this God or burning incense to that one. And Christians were out of certain workplaces, were out of certain fields and vocations, and their kids didn't have certain opportunities because trade guilds required a basic allegiance to this or that God in connection with that trade, and Christians couldn't participate. All of Christianity was born in this. We were born into poverty. (laughs) We have a savior who was poor and who was killed, and his followers signed up for something like what he was given. That's where this whole religion was born. It wasn't born in human strength and the state's power. It was born under the state's foot and thumb. Well, Rome didn't very much care. Rome wanted stability and it wanted to provide peace and a sense of national coherence was a part of that. And it really had been like that in I don't know, maybe every nation, but most nations and civilizations had a kind of a coherence in a single primary allegiance or God, even if there were many gods and religions fused in together. And the state's interest wasn't so much that they believe this or that, but that they ultimately submit themselves to the reigning public orthodoxy. But it's Christians in the first century who were the ones making the case in the second century to Tertullian, to Tertullian, if I'm saying that right, in particular. Read that name a hundred times, maybe less than that, hardly ever say it. Who is making a defense of Christianity to the state and trying to explain the importance of religious freedom and the freedom of conscience to a state that didn't understand why it's important that religion is not coerced. Christianity was not a coercive religion that uses the sword of the state in order to make converts. Christianity and Jesus are not just interested in people signing on the dotted line and, and outwardly expressing that they're for this or for that. The whole, the whole thing of Christianity cut against the grain of the ancient world and that what we're talking about is voluntary and we come to Christ on our, and it's of course because of inner beliefs and convictions that we have, even if the people and nation around us don't have them. It's not like one religion to a nation. I think it's Cicero who said, I'm going to entirely botch it. Every nation has always had a God, and so will we. It doesn't really matter which one it is. In other words, it's a basic governing principle. We all need a unifying center. We all have a religion. Our nation will have a religion too. How come the Christians later can't get along with it? But it was Christians that made this case that individual people ought to be able to come to religious conclusions on their own and live according to those conclusions. And eventually, That idea, which is profoundly true and matches the reality of what humans are, won out. And so we have something like religious freedom, however you want to express it, in the West. No, religion isn't a one-to-one with the state, and it's not the state's job to tell us what we believe and how we should think. It's interesting, there were defenses of this idea made, made with words, But there were greater defenses made with lives because it was Christians who gave their lives for Jesus whom they couldn't see, who they believed was Lord. And that's what was especially compelling. There were arguments to be made and that were made about the importance of this. But the best argument was martyrdom. The seed of the church is the death of the saints. And so as the Roman world watched on as Christians confessed Jesus as Lord at the cost of their jobs or at the cost of their friendship or at the cost of family relationships, tragically, and even at the cost of their lives, well, they had been swearing allegiance to a human emperor who claimed deity. And everyone just kind of knew that this is 
This is just signing. It's just signing the dotted line. Maybe it was different for different people. But it didn't have carry true and deep and abiding meaning beyond death. And here you had men and women proving how great Jesus is because not only is he greater than life, but he is worth dying for. And so the death of the saints and everything that it costs a Christian to keep his allegiance to Jesus is proof to a watching world that he is worth it and that he really has risen from the dead. And it's proof of the things that we say about Jesus. And it gives people hope to know that maybe there really is hope in life and in death. So there were arguments to be made that you can read as early as the second century about the importance of the freedom of individual people taught by Christians to believe things apart from the coercion of the state. The government is limited in other ways and separate. But there was also an argument being made in the lives and in the laying down of lives on the part of Christians. And it has always been that way. So we give to God our whole inner life. And this idea of the inner life is peculiar to Christianity in history. And God wants it. He wants us to love him with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. Well, we also give to God our whole outer life, our whole inner life, your thoughts and your beliefs and your affections belong to him. They are his things. And your outer life belong to God. I think that's a good framework that can carry us in conversation as we confront various challenges. Is this something where I have to compromise what I believe to be true in my inner life? Or do I have to compromise in my outer life, how I'm living and what, what I'm doing? These things need to match up. That's a part of being a Christian too, is that your outer life and your inner life cohere. They match. You don't say one thing in your heart to God in prayer and then sort of live however you want or say whatever you need to say that these outer and inner lives match. We owe to God a a few things. If we were to organize these, we owe to God our words. That is, what we say with our mouths should be true. What we say with our mouth should always be true. This means that when the state or in the context of a, a culture with a reigning orthodoxy, where in the context of work or in friendship or, or the state says, you must say this, fill in the blank. You have to ask yourself, inwardly, I believe this to be true on the basis of God's word. Can I say that and be true to the truth? God owns our words the things we say with our mouth. So there are things that we can't say. There are also instances in which the state or others might tell us we need to stop saying things we must say. Of course, an important passage comes to mind. You don't need to turn there, but in the book of Acts, this famous early encounter where the matter was obvious and we had... Peter and John boldly preaching. They were uneducated common men and everyone's astonished, but they were making trouble as the Romans would be concerned. What shall we do with these men, they said, for a notable sign has been performed through them and it's evident to everybody in Jerusalem and we can't deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in Jesus's name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you're going to have to judge. For we can't but speak of what we've seen 
and heard. Now that doesn't mean in every moment, in every time of day, we need to be speaking about these things. But do you ever speak about these things? Do you ever speak about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead? You know, everyone in this room and everyone on the road, when you go home and everyone in your neighborhood, I don't know, some of them might live a good long time. Let's say 110 years from now, they're all dead. All of them, every single one. And every single one is born in Adam with a fear of death. And we have the answer to death. We have Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel, which is good news and it's good for a reason, is that it's an answer to our biggest problem. You ever speak about that? We can't help but speak about this. And Jesus broke into the world in order to save us. And then he sent us the spirit to embolden us to speak in just just this way. And if ever there does come a day when the things that I'm saying here are considered hate speech or your preaching of the gospel and belief in these things is considered hate speech, we'll just have to take the accusation and the misrepresentation and it's already happening to some extent and there are places where it has happened and there's been legal recourse. No, we will continue to preach even if the heat goes up. So there are things the state can't tell us we must say. We can't go along. And then there are things we must say that the state can't tell us we can't say. Point is, is that we owe God our words, our mouths, the things that we say with our mouths. We must obey God rather than men. Well, God owns our work as well, the things we do with our hands. And as I've said, I suspect that there are certain vocations that will be increasingly compromising for Christians. And I feel for those of you who are going to wake up with a new reality uh, in human resources or in uh, in medicine or in education, a variety of ways, Um, whether it's being required to teach ideologies that you believe are harmful and destructive to human relationships like critical race theory, or whether it's having to perform an abortion in your particular profession, the Hyde Amendment is being removed. I'm not sure exactly all of the entailments there, but certainly in medicine, there are things that certain people in certain parts of that field are going to be required to do. And I feel for those of you waking up and realizing you're this many years down the road in a career and your retirement's all bundled up with it and you need to eject. I had a friend, he was an anesthesiologist and he had an epileptic seizure. And then he had another one. He was done with that job. (laughs) You don't want your anesthesiologist blacking out. Um... That's straightforward, right? Well, there are just going to be some moments where you just know it's only right to get out. And you've got to get out. A dear friend and family member of my own, there's a a famous story in my own family, and this gentleman is honored for this obedience to God, but he was so many years into a career with a business, and family members were involved and was asked to manipulate the books and wouldn't do it, and was pressed, and wouldn't do it, and lost the job. And uh, he could have cooked the books. So you've, you've been here before, many of you. We've got stories in our own church of honest work leading to hard decisions and changes in careers. Let's just get used to hearing about how that friend and shepherding group is having to figure out how to get a new job. That's going to be okay, and that's to be expected in order to serve and to please and to give to God what is God's and to love God with our whole heart and whole mind. Now, there are all kinds of other things that belong to God as well in our outward life, where we go with our feet, our our movements, our associations, but those are two. Our words, what we say with our mouth and our work, what we do with our hands. So think about that as what does it mean to love the Lord my God with all my heart, strength, and mind? What does it mean to give to God what's God's? Well, it means he gets my whole life. My thoughts are owed to him. My beliefs are owed to him. My whole outer life, what I say with my mouth is owed to him. 
What I do with my hands and my work belongs to him. And then we can try to apply that together with biblical wisdom. And we'll all grow in what that means over time. Well, a third thing we'll explore together today. How do we render these things to God? How do we render these things to God? Turn to chapter 13. I thought this was relevant enough. It was within reach and within a chapter. Seems like we need it. First thing I'll say from verse three is that we render these things to God uh, without alarm, without alarm. Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives and they were asking, when are all these crazy things gonna happen? And he began to say to them, verse five, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I'm he and they'll lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, whoa, don't be alarmed. This must take place and the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Earthquakes in various places, famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pangs. So there you've got nations fighting nations and earthquakes. You've got natural disaster. You've got international problems and wars and rumors of wars. And he says, don't be alarmed. Christians are not alarmists. But it's not because... There isn't some terrible stuff going on. It's because we fully expect terrible things to go on. And we don't rejoice in those things, but we expect those things. So Jesus is managing our expectations. So as we give to God what is God's, let us not be be alarmed. Let us not be alarmed. As we give to God the things that are God's, let's do so with anticipation that we will suffer and that we will need to speak, verses nine through 13. Be on your guard. They'll deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So I take it that governors and ruling authorities would have reason to want their people to turn Christians in for Jesus's name. And whatever they're doing and however they're living and whatever they're believing about Jesus, that's an expectation that Jesus is setting. Be on your guard. Don't put your guard down. Keep it up because guess what's going to happen? You're going to get delivered over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues for my sake. And he says to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Wow, so the suffering of the church and of God's people is in some profound way, a a part of God's plan to see the gospel preached to all nations. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. It's not ending until that happens. And when they bring you on trial and deliver you over, here's a command for you. Don't be anxious beforehand. What you're to say or what a what uh, uh but say whatever's given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Now, this is sad, isn't it? Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Russia, China, North Korea, Eastern Europe in years past, there's, there are places in the world and in the memory of people alive today where this kind of thing was happening, where this kind of thing was happening. And don't be alarmed, friends. And even as these things come in one form or another to one person or another, let them come and be anticipate them and anticipate that you, will, that you will suffer and anticipate that you will speak. That you will speak because you can't not speak. That you will speak the truth and you can defend yourself against false accusations and lies. And you can speak the truth about Christ and why you believe what you do. And it doesn't have to be before governors or kings that you do that. Uh, Get about it long before then. You know, if you do have to bow out of a certain job for reasons of personal conviction and change a career, it's a great opportunity to speak about Jesus and to let somebody see that following Jesus is apparently worth your job. You don't need to be cranky about that. You don't need to be mean about that. You can be non-anxious and non-alarmed, but ready as if you knew it was coming, as if when you started following Jesus, this was a part of the deal. This is just a part of following Jesus. It's one more hard thing that Jesus calls us to. And he's a great master and he's worth it. So how do we go about this without being alarmed? We do it with anticipation that we should suffer. It's our expectation and that we will speak. We also do it with awe. 
Look at verse one. And he came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, look what wonderful stones and what wonderful building. They're looking at the temple mount and it's beautiful. And it's the place of the presence of God in the world. It's beautiful what hap- for what happens there theologically, but also for the structure itself would be an incredible sight to behold. Jesus, just look at the awesome building. And Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. No, Jesus, Jesus is building something more beautiful than this. Jesus is laying down brick after brick after brick to construct a new building that is stronger and more beautiful and more lasting and more more wonderful with more wonderful stones. And that building that Jesus is building is nothing less than his church, his people that he has saved by his precious blood and that he gathers together and that he beautifies with his word each Lord's day when we meet a people who take care of each other and treat each other well and obey the Lord from full hearts of worship who give their whole lives to God because they know their whole lives are God's. Jesus came for worship, you see? And so we worship personally, but as a building that gathers together as living stones come together to form the building that is a local church when we meet. Well, now some final thoughts on resistance. And let me just collect here uh, six thoughts. And these are a rehearsal of some things I shared at the end of the sermon two weeks ago, adding a little bit of color and texture to it. Some asks, some exhortations from me. First friends, let's, let's stay on task Let's stay on task, giving ourselves wholly to the great commission to preach the gospel to all nations and to full obedience to everything that Jesus commanded. Part of the great commission is to preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. So we better obey everything Jesus commanded. Let's stay on task with that. We've said that No matter what happens here or where we end up as Christians, we can fully obey that command there without the help or the hospitable environment of the state or without religious freedom from the state or without freedom to speak, the gospel will go forward without hindrance, even if we're in chains. Half our New Testament was written from prison floors, it seems. I don't know what that means for you exactly, means speaking the gospel, obeying everything Jesus commanded. That might mean changing diapers this week. It might mean spending time with your kids on the floor. It might mean mowing your lawn. It probably means, for many of you, going to work and doing an honest day's job. It might mean engaging in the political sphere as a part of it. Recognize that the world around us uses the state as the means to bring about judgment and a new creation. Jesus brings about that. But if your horizon is this world, then the state becomes very important and the stakes go way up and your whole life is bound to it. Don't mirror that commitment. Commit yourself in love for neighbor to engagement in the political sphere and researching these things and engaging. But don't act like it's your whole life and like true judgment and new creation come about by means of the sword, for they don't. No, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And it seems to me that he was constantly trying to get his disciples to recognize that. Peter put down the sword. It goes without saying that violence is not how we advance the gospel commission and we shouldn't be involved in it as it concerns politics either. So stay on task, friends. Set the temperature. Set the temperature. Let scripture control your passions how they are related and in what order, how hot you get on things. We don't pick fights, but we do take sides. There are many things that are important to us and they ought to be, and we can be grieved and angry and all this, but keep your temperature regulated according to the word of God. Don't be alarmed. Don't be anxious. Remember those words of Jesus. Third, seek and speak 
the truth so you can speak the truth about God, that he's bigger than the state. Uh, Let's do away with bad theology. You can pitch your Joel Osteen book. You can pitch your Sarah Young Jesus Calling. If you need a list from me of other books or you just want to ask me if it's a bad book, I'll tell you if it is and, and I'll give you some reasons why. But there's no time for this. There's no time for it. Seek and speak the truth about God, about, about humanity. Don't embrace a theology of racial essentialism or a belief that humans may be divided into two groups of oppressor and oppressed. Of course, some find themselves on the, the victim side of things and, and there is real oppression in the world, but the world loves to peddle in a, a real truth in order to peddle Lies that undermine human relationships and divide in the gospel doesn't, doesn't do that. Be careful about this. Be careful about what you say and believe about gender and don't bear false witness about what men are or what women are, about marriage and what it is. And seek and speak the truth about, about Jesus and witness to him, witness to his glory and his grace. Fourth, friends, stick together. Stick together as a church. Don't let the lines that have been drawn in the last four years with our peculiar political situation be the lines that decide where your friends are and the people you like to lunch with and hang out with, even in our own church. Careful about that. These were hard years. There will be people in our church with different sensibilities about what's at stake in this moment or or what's coming down the road. And we all need to work on those kinds of things, but we need room to explore these things together, even change our thoughts on that over time uh, without feeling like we've lost in this or that conversation. People need an opportunity to repent of having participated in things that they shouldn't have. The Ephesians took too long to get around to getting rid of their magic books, but they finally did. And there will be some in our church who are sinning in the way that they're engaging in their vocation in the community. And then they'll repent and we'll celebrate that. And we'll hash it out along the way. And some things will be more clear than others to us. So we'll have different sensibilities and we need room for that. And stick together with brothers and sisters from other churches. My hope is that more pressure culturally makes the priority of substance go up and style style go down. And I think... I think it might. Fifth, friends, sit tight. Remember, remember, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And that's a dead sure promise. I'm gonna add one today with my little ST scheme. Helps me remember at least. Settle in advance that you will get in trouble for Jesus. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus carries us to, calls us to carry our crosses, to leave father and mother for his sake. And he says, if you, if you set off to build a tower, you would lay some plans and consider the cost of it. If you set out to war, you would take inventory of whether you had what it took to win. In other words, count the cost of following me. Before you follow me, count the cost. And so on the authority of the Bible, just settle in advance of trouble coming that you will get in trouble for, with, for Jesus. You're not going to make trouble. You're not hoping for it. But Jesus has promised you some trouble. And so when it comes, you'll know it's for his sake. And you'll, be, you'll have a better obedience muscle to obey for his name. You know, Christians have gotten this kind of advice in different seasons and from different preachers. And I'll close out with these words from from Charles Spurgeon about dying to self. The man who practices dying daily every day, the man who has, as it were, a daily rehearsal of it, will not be afraid of the reality when it comes. So die daily, brothers and sisters, in this fashion. Get into the habit of doing so. The next piece of advice I have to give you is this. Hold very loosely to everything on earth. We ought to live in this world like lodgers at an inn. You, believer, are only at an inn. So do not fret about the little inconveniences here, for you are to be off in the morning. You may depend on it that your father's carriage will be at the door at the right time. So have everything packed up, ready for your departure. Do not go buying a lot of lumber here. 
for you cannot carry it with you. Have very little and have it all ready and have a very good thing. It is a very good thing to send as much as you can ahead before you. December 17th, 1874. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how your preached word has sustained the church in different ages. In the first century, as the gospel is preached in the recent memory of Jesus' death, in the second century, as apologists argued for the importance of the state not coercing religious belief in order that men and women might come to Christ of their own volition. And the church and Christians have not always got that relationship right, but Father, help our church to get it right, to pray for the state's limited and separate and good place in our lives, recognizing that it is your servant. Nevertheless, praying for help and boldness and courage from your spirit to obey you and to give you the things that are yours, even when Caesar or someone else wants to arrest them from us or demand them from us. Help us, Father. It is hard to know when we're looking at that kind of a moment and to obey you from faith. And would you bless us for doing it in Christ's name. Amen.